welcome to Dialogue and Debate here at Cumberland Lodge. Last month we talked to Dunya Habash and Amro Hussain about different approaches to enabling interfaith harmony. So thank you to everyone who's watched that so far. If you want, still want to see it, it's available via our website. Today we're talking about significant recent developments in the way we live and organise our societies and discussing lessons we can learn from finding common values. And I'm delighted that we're joined in the studio today by Lord Green, UK's former uh, Trade and Investment Minister, former Group Chair of HSBC, an Anglican priest and an author of books including The Human Odyssey, East West and The Search for Universal Values, published just a few months ago. Lord Green Stephen is now a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. We're also joined by Linda Yu, the economist, commentator and author of numerous books, including most recently, The Great Economists, How Their Ideas Can Help Us Today, which was listed as one of the best business books of the year in uh, 2018 by Time magazine. Linda holds academic posts at the London Business School, University of Oxford and the London School of Economics. She's also chair of the LSE's Economic Diplomacy Commission and is a former Chief Business Correspondent for the BBC. So welcome to you both. Thank you. We're going to start with a question for Stephen. And uh, Stephen, in your uh, new book, The Human Odyssey, you talk about how the long human odyssey of self-discovery has reached a crucial stage where everything we do affects everyone and everything else, uh, and we know it. So. Why do you think this is such a critical stage in human history? Well, because of uh, what follows on from that fact. First of all, it is new. Um, new not you know, since last year, let's say new over the last couple of hundred years, really. But for the first time in human history, a high proportion of people uh, know really quite a lot about what's going on in the rest of the world. And they travel more, um, they trade more with different parts of the world. Um, the, the, the sense that we're joined up and have uh, uh, common interests um, but also competitive uh, uh, needs uh, is much more acute now than it's ever been before. One of the re related, one of the manifestations of this is urbanisation. Mm. Uh, we have gone from a human history where for the vast bulk of that history most people lived in rural areas, had very little connectivity, uh, you know it was a big journey to go to the local market town, never mind to cross borders or cross oceans. Uh, we've gone from that to uh, a time when most people live in big cities. Uh, 2008 was the point where we passed uh, the 50% uh, mark for people living in big cities. In Europe it's already up to 80%. Um, in Asia it's 55 to 60% and heading upwards and there's no reason to believe uh, that we won't all end up as the normal experience uh, being urbanisation. And the thing about urbanisation is it changes you. It changes old social structures that are often very ancient, centuries, millennia old, break down under the impact of urbanisation. And so people have got to find themselves. They've got to, they've got to rethink, almost consciously and deliberately, rethink what their identity is when you're living in a big city. When, what goes with that. So massive social change. Linda, from an economist's point of view, do you also think this is a time of major change? Yeah, I certainly do. Um, if I look back over history, there, there are times in history in which 
the consensus around the best economic system breaks down. And I think we've seen this after, you will be unsurprised to hear, the first Great Depression of the 19th century, known as the Long Depression. That was when, in the late Victorian period, people started to really question whether the capitalism of Adam Smith and uh, the classical economists, which was you know, did not have a welfare state, whether that was really fit for purpose. And then we saw a change in attitudes in the creation of the welfare state in the 20th century um, as a manifestation of this breakdown of consensus and then a reforming of a new consensus that shapes our current society. And I think with the very slow recovery we've had over the last 10 years after the banking crash of 10 years ago, and I think some really deep structural challenges around technology and globalization and rising inequality. We are again at a time in which there's just a breakdown in consensus as to whether or not this economic system really works for the 21st century. To form a new one requires finding common values, finding principles that we think would, can be delivered through a better economic system that's more inclusive and that's more suited for where the world is currently at. But I think this is one of those crucial times in history. Just to explain to those who are joining us on the internet, if you want to ask any questions uh, to Stephen and Linda, you can do that. And you can submit your questions via the chat function if you're watching live on Vimeo or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commentating on our Facebook live stream. So clearly what we're looking at this morning is this search for, for common values in a very rapidly changing uh, world. and. Um, one of the things you say, Stephen, in your book is that the more we learn about each other, the more we discover the commonalities of human experience, for we discover ourselves fully only as we discover the other. Perhaps you could tease out what you were saying in your book, because I think it's highly relevant to, yeah. to what we're about to discuss. Yeah, it is. And it, it, but it's worth a, a minute, or, minute or two of setting the context. You see, as we get connected, what you see, uh, as I've just said, is uh, uh, the sweep of urbanisation through human societies. You also see a rising cultural consciousness and cultural assertiveness in a whole series of parts of the world. But if you think in particular of the landmass of Europe, Asia, and by that I mean everything from Ireland to Vladivostok, mm -hmm. uh, you are seeing the shift of the centre of gravity from the west to the east, uh, the shift of economic centre of gravity from the west to the east. You're seeing a, a whole series of Asian um, uh, new powers on the world stage with a very strong sense of their own cultural identity. Mm -hmm. uh, China, uh, India, Japan, we, I think, don't talk enough about Japan, which has a very strong sense of national identity. Um, uh, and then others who are struggling to find their identity in the modern world. I think of Russia, you think of Turkey, perhaps you think of the Islamic world more generally, particularly the Middle East, though. Um, and then you think of Europe, fractured and unsure of what it stands for. So identity politics are as strong as they ever were on the world stage. Uh, those who think that the nation state is dead, I'm afraid, are deluding themselves. Um, in, in, in Asia, in particular, there's a very strong sense of national cultural assertiveness around. We see it on the streets of Delhi at the moment in the headline uh, news. The, the, the Indian Citizens Bill is all about asserting a, a very strong culturally rooted identity for the modern India. Um, all of that means that in some ways, we're more conscious of differences than we perhaps have ever been. 
Um, and at the same time, there's a, there's a growing imperative, because of our connectedness, because of the challenge of climate change and the fragility of the planet, to discover our common identity mm. beneath those um, uh, superficial differences, although I think they're not so superficial. How do we do that? We do that by engaging with each other and being ready to learn from each other. And as you do that, you find it an enormously enriching experience. And one of the things I do in the book is to look at the, 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 the literary results of human creativity in the different cultures and you see the most extraordinary things. You see four, just to name one example, a wonderful poem by a Tang Dynasty Chinese poet, so that's uh, uh, 1200 years ago. Um, it's a little uh, poem uh, on the death of his own three-year-old daughter. And you can't read this poem uh, without a lump in your throat because it's timeless and, and not culture-bound. This is human beings responding to the normal, uh, sad, you know, the, the repeated experience of, 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 of human life in, uh, wherever you are. And the more you discover that, the more you discover the human com commonalities. The more you do that, the more you learn about yourself as well as learning about the other. Hmm. There's a challenge, though, because I think when people are first exposed to cultures, religions, experiences very different to their normality, sometimes the initial reaction is one of resistance and um, sometimes anger. Uh, or, or patronising superiority, patronizing. which is you know, when the Europeans first yeah. went uh, eastwards into Asia, yeah. uh, all too often, I'm afraid, and the Brits uh, amongst the worst in this, yeah. uh, a sort of patronising sense of superiority to the cultures they found in the places where they had gone originally to trade. Yeah. You know, what was the East India Company? It was originally about trade. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, this became this sense of uh, superiority that we now know as colonialism, which has to be rejected. So yes, uh, the initial impact, the initial encounter can be all sorts of destructive and unwelcome things. Um, if you persist and really get to know the other as the individual, yeah. you learn more about them, you discover the commonalities and thereby enrich yourself. So it's a big challenge to be able to get people together in that, in that uh, way, especially if culture, strong national cultural identities are, are coming up. And how do you broker those? Is a, yeah, is and, a and I do think geopolitical tensions are rising at the moment. They're rising partly because of competition over scarce natural resources, um, so that's an economic question. They're also rising because of this growing sense of cultural uh, self-awareness based on deep-rooted um, cultural histories. China and India are two very obvious examples of this. For all of their differences, very obviously they have that in common. One of the things that unites us in this discussion is the world of economics. And uh, perhaps we can think about this from, a, from an economic context because um, economics doesn't come drop down to us, it comes up uh, from philosophical thinking and um, perhaps Linda you could explain something about the work you've been doing looking at, at economists of the past and how economics develops and some of the challenges it fa it, economics faces in terms of different cultural understandings of it. Mm. Yeah so in my book I look all the way back uh, about 250 years and I start with Adam Smith. Now he's known as the father of economics, most people know him for his book seminal work published in 1776, The Wealth of Nations. 
But he was actually a philosopher, and he also wrote many other books, including The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Mm. And he was, uh, he started the subject of studying how economic systems are formed, not just by looking at efficient markets, which is what he's sort of known for, the invisible hand, supply and demand, but he was part of a much larger movement, which was the Scottish Enlightenment, which was like the European Enlightenment, very much based on looking not just at um, a particular, uh, you know, system, but the philosophy, the mm. values. What is the? What are you trying to achieve with creating whatever sphere you're in? Um, a theory, a philosophy of life or of well-being. Um, and Adam Smith tried to make sense of the Industrial Revolution by essentially trying to capture this kind of. Um, enlightenment thinking into his work. And that was very prevalent through the other great economists that I looked at. Um, many of them um, were not trained as economists, came at it from different um, angles in the classical economists and then going through the neoclassical economists. And at some point, I think economics began to move away from its sort of more um, broader philosophical roots and it's become a much more technical subject. So. In that sense, I think this is the right point in, in time to look back at the greats, the general economists, who didn't just worry about solving a particular narrow problem, which you still have to do, um, but uh, taking those tools and applying it to the bigger questions. So even in the 20th century, this happened. So Joseph Schumpeter, many will have heard of him as the father of creative destruction. He came up with a theory that all the other economists had gotten it wrong. This is a very common theme, by the way, for yeah. great economists. <laughs> <laughs> that to understand uh, growth in business cycles, you need to look at how firms compete. They compete or they die. So it's very Darwinian. But his best known book was probably his 1942 book called um, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, whereby he linked capitalism and democracy. So he took his narrow tools and he looked at a much bigger question. And that time it was a real battle of ideas between communism, socialism and capitalism, because this is the period of the early 20th century with the rise of um, communist regimes, um, such as in the Soviet Union. So I think he's a, he's, he was one of many um, who began to look at it because there was a, you know, it was absolutely the right thing, mm. I think, to engage in that debate. And I feel we are now at a time in which we also need to look harder at the economic system and the values which underpin it and finding the common values um, that could help improve where we are today. Uh, can, I, can I pick up on yeah. that? Because I think the, the, the 21st century version of that great debate was between capitalism and, and, and communism, or between democracy and communism, depending on how you want to frame it, is now one between, um, you might argue, between individualism and Confucianism. And I pick those two terms because the two big powers on the world stage of the 21st century are going to be America and China. Yeah. Um, and they represent a cultural hinterland that's very different from each other, um, where the simple headline is individualism on the case, in the case of America and Confucianism in the case of China. If, if we had 45 minutes, I'd explain why those headlines are too simple <laughs> in both cases, yes. uh, but nevertheless, they capture something of the essence. Um, and the challenge looking forward over the next few decades is to work out whether we human beings collectively can find our way towards some kind of a synthesis. Mm. So you might say that individualism um, is, is something with a noble 
history going all the way back to John Locke, as if you want to name its philosophical kind of yeah. um, um, banner carrier. Um, on the one hand, and of course Confucianism has its own very distinguished long tail of history behind it. One of them does influence, uh, put the individual, the, the autonomous individual at the centre of the stage. Yes. The other sees the individual much more as part of a wider whole. Uh, the one tends to talk about human rights, the rights of the individual. The other tends to talk about responsibilities uh, so far as the individual is concerned because of the wider societal um, uh, order, uh, which is indeed in some versions of it sees that even in a cosmic context. Um, I think there's a great deal that each can learn from the other. Indeed, I think there's a great deal each has to learn from the other if we're going to successfully confront the big challenge that we all globally face over the next few decades, which is, of course, climate change, environmental degradation, and the assault that human beings have launched on the planet. And I think this sort of territory we're discussing now links into um, a comment that was made about uh, your recent book uh, by Paul Collier, professor at Oxford, who said um, some of the great economists of the past had insights that could have saved the subject, i.e. economics, from its recent embarrassments. Is, are we sort of touching on, on this sort of territory in our discussion now? Yes, we are. And I think, um, you know, if we look at some of the, uh, the precision, that's false precision from how technically um, some of the economic models can be presented. And I think the, the you know, I think the disappointment um, with economists over the past few years and probably longer is that there is a growing disconnect between what many feel are the big questions and then the kind of much more narrow um, questions that e economists have begun to to look at. So I think that's, you know, that is absolutely the reason we should look back in history and almost rediscover the roots of, um, of economics and the importance of looking at the big questions, even if the answers are a bit messy. And some of the great economists that I write about um, work with um, those from other subjects. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what Stephen has uh, mentioned is really critical. And it's not within just the realm of economics. Mm -hmm. I think you have to look at philosophy, history, um, political science. There's a lot of areas in which, um, in order to address the big questions, we do have to take inspiration from others and to collaborate. And I completely agree that one of our biggest global challenges is around the environment and the legitimacy of global institutions. Now, for the big powers to agree to a system of governance that affects everybody, they have to come together and agree on universal standards, mm -hmm. <laughs> rules, yeah. regulations, uh, norms, yeah. and that requires a coming together and an acknowledgement. They have different starting points, thinking about the US and China, um, but finding that commonality is going to be critical if we want to address anything around global public goods, um, our trading system, our investment system, the stability of our um, global you know, humanitarian efforts, all of these things. So to me, um, economists can play their role in this, but only if they do what um, Paul has admonished, which is, you know, don't be too worried if the answer is messy. Um, <laughs> you know, 
I think that's where the economists um, can contribute. Um, but that's not to suggest they shouldn't be well-trained, of course. Well-trained. <laughs> well-trained. <laughs> <Any question? laughs> Before we um, move on to the next question, just a quick reminder to those watching on the internet that you can submit questions via the chat function if you're watching live on Vimeo or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. So we've got to a point where we've um, said that um, we need to look at some values and those values can underpin things like the whole discipline of economics which of course has massive implications for how uh, business and well life in general is, is lived out. Um, let's try and drill down onto what some of these values might be and Stephen you've clearly spent a lot of time and um, put a lot of thought into trying to tease out values from very different cultural backgrounds, very different religious backgrounds. Perhaps you could kick us off by saying what, what, you've, what you're, you're coming to conclude in your book. Well, I, I, I called the book The Human Odyssey because I think of fundamental importance is to recognise this is a journey. Um, you do not start off, uh, I think, in any culture of the world with a set of defined values about which there's nothing more to be said. It's just obvious if anybody thought about them, they're the right list. Um, I don't think life's as simple as that. Um, and uh, it, it, I tell you what, one interesting way into this topic is to look at the UN Declaration of Human Rights, mm-hmm. 1947 or 8, can't, uh, late, late 1940s anyway, yeah. drawn up uh, by a committee chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt, the, the widow of the, of the great US president. Uh, most of the staff work on it done in fact by a Canadian lawyer. Uh, and if you read it, it doesn't take you very long to read, it's, um, the first thing you'll notice is, is how prescient it was. It's, it's striking that it isn't the, that the kinds of rights that it refers to, things like the I mean, right to paid holidays, I mean, some really quite detailed social and economic rights, mm. um, which we would now recognise uh, as, as obvious, but at that point were, were quite path-breaking. Um, what it doesn't have uh, uh, is anything very much about responsibilities, um, and it doesn't have very much about the recognition of cultural learnings and cultural instincts, cultural insights mm. uh, into the nature of the human condition. Yeah. And I think if you were doing it again these days, if we ever rewrote the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, you would certainly want to expand in the direction of responsibilities to future generations, care for the planet and so forth, and you would almost certainly want to have something about the right to a sense of your own cultural identity more deep, more clearly enshrined in it. I make those points to say, uh, to, to, to make essentially to make the what I think is the all important point that we are on a journey, um, and as we interact more and more, uh, and the amount of interaction has, has you know geometrically increased since the time of the UN Declaration, um, uh, we, we discover more about ourselves and more about our values, more about our sense of what is important. Mm. Um, we're not there yet, it's a kind of journey, and I come back to this thought, it's a simplified way of making the point, but this, this discussion between a, uh, an orientation puts the individual and the, the preciousness of the individual at the heart of things, you know, that's, that's individual, the, the, the key notion of individualism, the preciousness of the individual at the heart of things, versus one that's uh, a, 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 an orientation that says there's a wider whole and that's important and actually the individual has got some responsibilities within the wider whole. We need both things. Mm. 
So we've got a journey towards an, a, a clearer, gradually less messy, to mm-hmm. pick up Linda's mm-hmm. point, you know, yes, it's messy, and the journeys uh, will have all kinds of, you know, wrong turns and, and, and reversals and whatnot, mm-hmm. and yet we, we need to keep going mm-hmm. on this journey of human self-discovery through discovery of each other. Mm-hmm. We have a question that's very yeah. pertinent to this. I think we just pick that up from, from someone on, uh, joining in via the internet. It says, who gets to choose which values we should have in common? I think it's a, a big question. Mm. I think I'll let Stephen take that. We'll you the second question. I think it, who gets to choose? The answer is no committee of, you know, there is no committee of experts who gets mm. to choose. We discover, we as collectively we discover this um, and, and indeed hu- human society there are so many reversals and wrong turnings mm. that we can be uh, um, uh, we, we can lose sight of the fact that nevertheless we make what I think is unambiguously progress mm. I mean for all of the obvious imperfections just to take this country as an example there are many imperfections in the, you know the modern Britain many imperfections um, but if you look back at the 1970s, and I'm old enough to remember them reasonably clearly, uh, let alone the 1950s, which I can just about remember as a small child g- growing up, um, you, you, and if we were pitched back into those times, we would be stunned, I think, by how racist, sexist, and classroom it all was. Yeah. Now, many people will say, and we still are racist, sexist, and classroom, but nothing like we were yeah. then. We are in a wholly different space from then. And that's not because somebody has chosen a set of values. It's, it's actually society learning. Now, it's also learned some, some other things that we might be less pleased with. So the journey um, has got its ups and downs and its byways and its uh, cul-de-sacs and wrong turnings. But I think the common journey of human self-discovery um, is the all-important thing. Mm. I don't know whether to be optimistic or pessimistic about mm. this, by the way, um, I, I, but I, I am committed to the importance of us just continuing to, to try and find that way forward. Yeah, and I think the media's probably got something to play with this. One of the things I've been doing is looking on YouTube at things I used to watch as a kid. And I started... Oh, you'd be horrified. I, I'm totally horrified, yeah. I think. Yeah. That's where I was absorbing all sorts of yeah. uh, subliminal messages about other people yeah. and so on and so forth. And now I think, ooh. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so yeah. clearly yeah. we need to think about how, what goes out in the media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we obviously have got something, a very different form of media now to, to my day, which is social media mm-hmm. and how that's influencing people. And clearly we've got to work out how to how to promote good values through, through that. Although it begs a whole second order set of questions is how much the state or the wise or whatever it is should seek to control or influence yeah. what the media put out mm-hmm. is, is a whole separate set of uh, important questions for our time. Mm-hmm. So we've got to try and get these values to come, come up through, through society. But if we're going to find commonality, we do have to have some sort of ways of, of bringing people together from different cultures, different backgrounds, to actually start to broker them, as it were. How, how do you think we might go about that? Uh, so 
very Go on, Linda, your turn. <laughs> taking up yeah, the second exactly. question. What are the practical ways we can do this? The practical ways, yeah. yes. Um, and it says British communities, but maybe we'll think about Britain, but also perhaps a bit more broadly as well. Yeah. I think I'll answer this in probably two parts. Um, I think... You know, I completely agree with what Stephen has said. I think it does need to come from society. I think it's going to be, it's a journey. And thinking about the breakdown and consensus that we've had in past episodes of history, it's taken a long time to form a new one. And the consensus which is formed is not, it's itself in flux and can be. So I propose a couple of things to think about. So the very first thing is in order to find what a community, and I think it needs to start at the community level before it permeates it's up to the national level and then perhaps the international level, is if we think to um, how it is that we make decisions about um, what we would like to have our community abide by. So I'm going to use a very specific example from John Rawls's A Theory of Justice. Mm-hmm. So in this book, he describes a veil of ignorance. So if you were to stand behind the veil, um, you didn't know whether the, the bridge um, that's being proposed whether or not you would benefit from it or whether or not you would just pay for it or a welfare program or whatever it is or an environmental initiative. If you didn't know where you stood, um, how would you um, vote? And I think that ethical lens is one way, there's many others, of thinking about things we want to have at the community level. So now the second point I'll make is one of the things that I've looked at quite a lot is economic growth and development. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the impressive progress around extreme poverty in Mm -hmm. 1990, over a third of the world lived on less than $1.25 per day, adjusted for what a dollar buys in their country. By 2010 um, and now, we are at a historic low point where one in 10 live in extreme poverty, defined by a slightly higher metric, but it's comparable. So of the 767 million people who live in extreme poverty, what worked in the previous decades probably don't work. Now, in order to get development to work, it's not just having technical solutions. It's about adopting. It's about societies buying in. It's about societies contributing. So in order for us to meet this goal that Mm. I think all nations of the world have signed up to, so it's one example where you do have commonality, to deliver it, you need civil society at the grassroots level, you need faith communities, leaders who can bring people together and discuss what's needed to be done, you need social um, entrepreneurs, youth leaders, showing you practical ways in which they can improve the lives of people in their communities. This could be different even within a province or a state, different communities, but by coming together and showing progress, they could learn from each other and reinforce this value. Um, and I can see this, you know, we can find other values. Um, I think this is the only way we'll be able to do it, not just with technical experts flowing in by the state or the government mandating things. It's about people at the community having their say and because they know best. Yeah. Let's, just thinking about what Stephen was saying about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and what you've just uh, been saying, that we also need to be, we need to, we need to be able to change and move with, with the way that societies, cultures develop. So for example, in the digital age that we now live in, we are probably seeing the rise of a new form of poverty, which we've not thought about now in the past, digital poverty, because access to the internet has all sorts of issues to do with power, uh, economic ability. And so maybe we want to put in our human rights, that's the rights to access to digital uh, media. Um, so do you think that's something we should be, be thinking about? 
I, I, yes, I do. I, 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 the digital age is changing us, of course, and we're still in the midst of it, so it's quite hard to see all of its implications and ramifications. All I know is that, <laughs> that as somebody who was born, born and brought up before it existed, <laughs> whereas my grandchildren kind of you know, had it from, from, from the, you know, the first sort of, uh, you know, with, with their first milk, as it were. Um, so, yes, it, and it poses all sorts of issues, and one of them is about uh, inequality. Yeah. Uh, it, first of all, like who's got it and who hasn't, who, yeah. who is connected and who isn't, yeah. And secondly, there's, there's another, I think, a subtler inequality, which is a danger, and I don't know what you'd do about this. Um, the, the, the internet can be, and the enormous wealth of information it provides to, uh, to, to you can be used for destructive means, we know about that. It can be used for time wasting, you know, mm. the hours spent on games for, you know, just, just for squandering a, a, a life away in, 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 in a, if I'm going to use the phrase mindless stuff, mm. or it can be used as an enormous adjunct to your own um, intellectual um, development, your, your own, uh, your own uh, the development of who you are and what you want to do in the world. So it can be a terribly um, uh, an enormous aid or an enormous hindrance to the flowering of individual lives. Mm. Don't know what you do about that. Um, it's a fact of life. It's not going to go away. Any modern urbanisation, which I began by talking about, is going to go away. Mm. We cannot turn the clock back to a pre-digital age or to a pre-urban age. We cannot go back to the kind of unconnected rural communities um, that were most of human history. Mm. So we are where we are, and we have to find our way through. Yeah, but maybe the challenges that are being posed on not just individuals but society the world at large through uh, digital uh, media is actually that might be the catalyst for trying to come together to find common values because that seems to me to be such a it's such a, a fertile uh, area for both good and bad yeah. and maybe yeah. that's what might, might bring everyone together around the world I think greater connectivity certainly has that I mean even in this webinar we are you know we are essentially discussing how you find common values with an audience you know who could be anywhere in the world so it certainly has that I think power I think the problem and then as both of you have pointed out is that there is an inclusion aspect there's an inequality aspect there's also I think just trying to work out what the rules of engagement are in a in a medium where you don't necessarily have, as you have in, say, traditional media, gatekeepers. Now, well, not all the gatekeepers are respected. I think that's one of the big mm -hmm. um, challenges of the 21st century. But if I think about what enabling digital technologies have done in the economic sphere, it's astounding, the possibilities. Mm. So one of the biggest problems is financial inclusion. There are many, many people who are unbanked in the world. So for them to be meaningful participants in society, the ability to translate their pay into savings, which could help them uh, with their, um, you know, not just their homes, or um, but their pensions, their, their management, their finances, um, through um, simple things like mobile payment systems, like M-Pesa in Kenya, um, there's an incredible improvement in terms of helping people manage their money um, because you don't need a bank account. You can just have your money loaded onto your mobile payment system. And that saving gets translated into investment um, because now the money is actually not just in cash, it's actually included in the economic system as a whole. So a study of Kenya found that total factor productivity, the key metric for what improves standards of living, has been significantly increased 
just through introducing um, a app that's connected <laughs> yeah. to the fact that everyone has a mobile phone, even yeah. if they don't have a bank account, yeah. or yeah. they may not even have fixed line telephone. Nobody, I know, fixed line telephones. That shows an earlier age. Telephone banking. You need yeah. a phone. Yeah. Telephone banking. Yeah. Was the telephone banking and microfinance between yeah. them as a way of including more and more people. And here, especially women, yeah. um, small businesses in rural areas in, in a place mm. like Kenya. Um, so one little anecdote on that, um, I was a couple of three years ago in Myanmar um, looking at some microfinance businesses, not-for-profit microfinance, and, we, and I went to see a particular family quite a long way out from Yangon in, in a very small community where the, the husband was a carpenter making, making office furniture basically, um, rather crude office furniture. Um, and the, uh, so he, he did all the, 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 the carpentry, his wife ran the business, and between the two of them, um, they, they were, uh, he, was, uh, he was unable to string two sentences together. Of, uh, he was very kind of, very kind of um, um, introverted, one would say, to use it. And, and she was the absolute classic marketer and business manager. She got all of the kind of pizzazz in, in, the, in the household. And there were four children there. Uh, one of whom was a girl aged about, I don't know, 15 or something like that. And I, I asked through the interpreter what she wanted to do when she'd finished school, to which she immediately replies in English, I want to be an engineer. And I thought, this is a wonderful little example of, of the way in which inclusion through microfinance and running a small business that's selling goods into the nearest town is starting to change that family. Mm. Of course, I don't know how that will work out. And if that girl achieves her ambition... Um, she will move away from there into the big city. Mm -hmm. So here comes the urbanization again. Um, it's a process of change which has included them and given them a standard of living they couldn't have had before, given them education which the, uh, her parents did not have, um, but will also change them very radically. Before we bring this conversation to an end, I'm just going to ask one question because both of your recent books uh, draw on history, very strongly from history. So perhaps you could just offer a thought about one thing from the recent past that you think is a crucial thing for us to think, take hold of as we look forward to the opportunities that the internet, everything else offers in the future. One bit of wisdom that you might take from the past that you want to share. You first. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think um, I've spoken um, a bit about the sort of the long arc of, of how um, change happens through history. I think probably um, if I go back to uh, the Long Depression, so the Great Depression in the 19th century, the lessons there were not just around, um, so I've described some of the lessons there linking to the political system. It was also around how you deal with inequality, which is a massive issue that we have today. We talked about how technology could actually exasperate um, inequality. And I think inequality, so when, you know, when I've gone around um, speaking about the big economic challenges um, that I write about in my book, it's the topic that most people are most keen to hear more about. And I think if we learn from what happened in the Long Depression, that was that pre, that actually was followed by the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. So this is a period, you know, captured by F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby, mm -hmm. extreme inequality in America. In America today, inequality is so high, it's called the Second Gilded Age. 
So that kind of social um, dissatisfaction led to experimentation with different approaches. So the late Victorian attitude was you help the deserving poor. But that's a social change that the economist then translated into how do we do that? Do we have a transfer system, an employment system, national health service? Um, in different countries, it came out different ways. The New Deal um, in the United States. And that process, I think, suggests there's no one answer to deal with inequality today. And in fact, we might get it wrong. So a lot of things which are being discussed could it be more redistribution? Could it be a wealth tax? And the his from history, we would say you try these things and see experiment mm -hmm. and see what works before you know you roll it out. But I think that the main thing I would stress is you need a political social consensus on the appropriate level of inequality. And then you look at the tools to achieve it and what you're willing to um, you know, to, to push for, to accept, to, uh, to promote. And that conversation may be different for different countries, but I think it's absolutely um, a key one to have. And not to be discouraged if, the, um, you know, if, if you try something like universal basic income and it doesn't quite work, that's okay. Maybe it's another iteration of it. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm trying, the lesson I would most stress is it takes time. Um, you'll be, governments will make mistakes along the way, but there's a huge amount that everyone in society can do to, um, to push for the level of inequality that you want in your society um, and to look at radical solutions um, and approaches. And I think that's the only way we're going to be able to address this massive um, issue. And finally, one of, the, one of the more innovative things that economists are looking at is now what's called pre-distribution. So you need redistribution, which helps people after the fact. But if you look at the very equal societies in East Asia, in Northern Europe, there's a lot of pre-distribution, making sure everyone has equality of opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's very challenging. But if you think about technological change, what you want is people who are equipped to cope with um, how technology is disrupting the workplace. And by giving them that, you have a better chance of helping people at the beginning, as well as redistributing when there's an issue afterwards. But as I say, it would be hard. There's a lot to do to find to get there. <laughs> Steve, you can have the last word. Um, well, it would be remiss of us, I think, not to mention the fact that we're conducting this conversation in the midst of what is potentially a pandemic. Um, and uh, uh, it's far too soon to answer this question, but if this really, if the, if the more sinister predictions come true, both in this country and in, and in the world at large, we're going to face a huge challenge toward the, uh, to c c connectivity. We're starting to see this at the, mm. at the micro level, if you will, of people cancelling um, flights and cancelling conferences and events and what have you. Um, so it's changing our pattern of life. Now, is this temporary or, or might this have a longer lasting impact? I clearly don't know. At the very least, it's reminding us of some of the dangers of connectivity um, and the way in which nature can bite back because um, after all at the end of the day this is nature biting back mm. at, at, at humanity um, and that in turn reminds us of the bigger challenge we've got that as the human population continues to grow as it continues to urbanize as it continues to uh, the process of leveling up, which is what economic development succeeds, you know, is, mm -hmm. is designed to achieve. Um, you know, why shouldn't um, uh, people in in the developing world expect the same standards of living that we take for granted? And what do, and as that aspiration is realised, what does that do to the planet? 
um, as we make more and more physical demands on it, um, uh, every now and then nature bites back. Um, and the coronavirus is in a sense that um, and if it does nothing else than force us to think more sensitively and responsibly about how we use the planet um, as we connect and engage with each other, um, well, that I hope is the least that you could expect out of what is a terrible scourge. Mm. So um, I, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a, it would be wrong of us not to yeah. uh, end on a note that, that you know, there are threats to globalization. Yeah. And one of them is a very natural threat, uh, a threat of by a natural, I mean, a threat posed by nature, in this case, a new virus um, that, that we're struggling to contain. We need to come to an end, Stephen. Linda, thank you very much indeed. Really fascinating. This conversation could go on much longer. It probably will uh, when this webinar comes to an end. Thank you so much indeed for such a stimulating uh, discussion. You can find out, if you've been watching, you can find out more about the work we do at Cumberland Lodge on our website at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. We hope too that you'll join us for our next monthly webinar, which is on Wednesday the 1st of April. Yes, the 1st of April, it's not a joke, um, at 11am, and we'll be discussing public dialogue and referendums live here from Cumberland Lodge. And you can sign up to get alerts about forthcoming webinars on the Keep In Touch page of our website, or simply by emailing us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Thank you very much indeed for watching. Mm -hmm.